Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everyone. How about them Buckeyes? Yeah. It's good to see you guys are here. I thought maybe some people would sleep in this morning. Well, like Michael said, my name is Jay McKinley. I'm one of the youth pastors here along with my lovely wife, Jamie. Um, do I have any uh, middle schoolers or high schoolers out there? Where you at? Where you at? Hey, hey, hey. Nice to see you guys. Well, hey, I'm happy to be here. Um, last week, Michael kicked off our Advent series. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Advent or weren't raised in like a traditional Christian home, Advent is just a, a period of time. It's four weeks. Um, it starts on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, where we just prepare our hearts for the arrival of Christ and, and Christmas. And um, how many of you guys grew up with Advent calendars? Any Advent calendars? A calendar, you've got a little window, and each day you open that up and see a little figure or something in there, but it just excites kids for the arrival of Christmas. Anybody have uh, Advent wreaths with candles? Had some candles, right? So each week you would get the light, the new candle, and as a, as a young boy, you know, getting to play with fire at a young age, it's a wonderful thing. Moms, you may want to wait a little bit longer, don't want bad habits to start. But um, we're going to be looking at, during our Advent season, we're, we've been looking at Christmas carols and uh, just honing in on like a specific phrase or an aspect of the carol. And uh, last week, Michael taught us on O Holy Night. And this week, I will be covering the little drummer boy. And so let me go ahead and pray and then we'll go and jump in. So, Father in heaven, we just come to you, and, and I thank you for your goodness. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you'd fill this place. We ask, Lord, that you would receive glory today. We ask that you would draw us close to you. So, ask that you guide me as I speak. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, Christmas carols. Now, I know we say this every year, but doesn't it seem like carols are playing earlier and earlier? Yeah. And, but some of you, this is a wonderful thing. Some of you out there, you're like, I could listen to Christmas carols all year long. Any of you out there? Yeah, I see you. And then there's some of us where this causes great strife and disagreement in the household and in car rides, doesn't it? All right? But no matter... When you believe we should listen to Christmas carols, there's something that's special about them. There's something that, that just stirs in our hearts when we listen to Christmas carols. And, and there's something that's amazing when, when we listen to carols or, or music in general, like the nostalgia that, that kicks in. And, and that music can draw us back into our past. It can bring up memories of experiences that we had or feelings that we had. And I believe that's why many of us love carols. It reminds us of the magic of Christmas as a child. It reminds us of, of just traditions that we had or food or, or the fondness of that, that one snowy Christmas morning with the stockings on the mantle and that warm fire that's glowing. But I believe, more importantly, it's, it's the music and, and worship and, and carols that connects us with God on a spiritual level. 
because there's power in praise. There's power in music, and, and God has instituted music as a way that we can connect with him, that we can worship him. And Michael shared last week that, that many of these carols that we sing were actually written as worship songs, and they're, they're filled with scriptural truths. They're filled with lyrics that, that point us to, to the Christ, to the Son who was given. And today we're going to be covering The Little Drummer Boy. And, and this was originally, the, the original title was Carol of the Drum, and it was written in 1941 uh, by a uh, classical music composer named Catherine Davis. And in 1951, it was uh, produced, it was recorded uh, by the Trap Family Singers and then later by this guy named Harry Simeon. And over the, year, uh, over the years, music artists such as uh, Jackson 5 have covered it, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, Bing Crosby and, and David Bowie did a duet, right? Uh, but today we're going to go ahead and listen to the, the traditional version by Harry Simeon. So you can go ahead and cue the music there. It's a very quiet song. We're having some
have it. How many of you guys grew up listening to that? Yeah, I miss all of us. Right, so the, the, the lyrics speak of a, of a young boy who's invited by the Magi to accompany them to see the baby Jesus. Uh, but for those of you who've read the Gospel of, of Matthew and the story of the Magi, you may recall there's no drummer boy in the Gospel. Right, so this is a fictional character that's developed by the songwriter. Um, and we, we find that in the lyrics that unlike the Magi, this drummer boy, he has no gift to bring the baby Jesus. And so what does he do? He plays his drum for Jesus with Mary's approval. Now this song is about a, a fictional character inserted into a historic event. But the, the, the verses and the meaning behind the song have great value, I believe. They, they help us celebrate the true meaning of Christmas. And since this song was, was written based upon the record of the Magi visiting Jesus, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you've got a Bible or an app, go ahead and turn there. We will have the verses up on the screen here. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's Bibles on the stage and on, on the uh, back there on the sound booth. If you don't own a Bible, happy or have a Merry Christmas and take a Bible for free. So let's go ahead and go to Matthew 2, verses uh, 1 to 12. And it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? He saw a star. He saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. So traditionally, uh, the wise men are, are characterized as three kings or wise men who traveled from far off to arrive in Bethlehem with impeccable timing to visit Jesus at his birth. But much of what we think we know about the wise men um, is actually based on church tradition. Like when we, we look at the scripture, we don't see that they actually arrived at the birth site of Jesus. It, it says on coming to the house. 
And, and so it's very likely that, that they were not there on Jesus' birth. Some uh, historians uh, or scholars suggest that Jesus may have been as old as two years old because of Herod's response when the Magi didn't return. He said, have the Jewish babies two years of, of, two years of age and younger killed. And, and there may not have been three wise men. It says there's three gifts. And so there could have been many more wise men or magi who arrived. Why would all of Jerusalem be surprised and, and astounded that three men arrived? There could have been many more. And, and it doesn't say that there's three kings. It, it says that they're magi. Magi can mean magician or astrologer. And, and some scholars suggest that these were Zoroastrian priest astrologers from Persia. Um, others suggest that, that these, these uh, magicians had been influenced by Daniel. If you know the book of Daniel, while he was in Babylon, he had great influence there. And so they would have become aware of Judaism and, and the prophecies found in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of people who try to fill in the gaps, and it can be interesting trying to fill in those gaps, but in the end, we really don't know for sure who these magi were. And to Matthew and to the Holy Spirit, who they were, their, their place of origin, their, their religious background, that wasn't of importance to report. But what was important was why they came. And so our first point is, why did they come? It says in the scriptures that the Magi came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these most likely well-educated magicians or astrologers of a different religion, we see that they were led by signs. They, they were led by evidence of a promised king, and they sought him out. They were led by prophecies that they had become aware of. They were led by signs. They were led by instruction from people that they encountered. And even when they, when they arrived in Jerusalem and King Herod, he called the, the chief priests and, and the experts to give them further direction where exactly he would be found. Well, King Herod, he was bent on evil, right? He, he had bad intentions, but God even used someone with bad intentions to point him, point them in the direction of the Savior. So why did they come? Because God led them. God produced signs. These were natural signs. These were supernatural signs, all divinely orchestrated. And when they found Jesus, what did they do? They worshiped him. They came because they were led by God to worship the Christ. And they were the first to worship Jesus. Right? They were the first people to worship Jesus as he stepped out of heaven and came to earth as a human being. They were the first people to worship Jesus. And what separates Jesus 
And, and Christianity, from all other religions, is, is who we say that Christ is. That Jesus Christ is God. That he's part of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. And, and, we, and we see in other parts of Scripture where Jesus received worship. We, we can look to Matthew 14 where Jesus walked on the water. And it says when he stepped in the boat, his disciples worshipped him. And we can look to Matthew 28 after Jesus died and, and was buried and was resurrected. When the first people that he appeared to was, was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the, the mother of James, and some other women. And it says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And if we look further on in that chapter, Jesus told his disciples to, to meet him at the mountain. And it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. So when we look in the scriptures, we, we see the, the story of the wise men, we see the story of the disciples and others, how they were led by God the Father to Jesus, and it resulted in the worship of Jesus. And, and we see, although with the disciples, did they come to an immediate conclusion who Jesus was in the beginning? No, it took time. Right? And even after Jesus was resurrected, Thomas, we all know doubting Thomas, right? He said, until I stick my fingers in his hand and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And so what did Jesus do? He appeared and he's like, okay, Tommy, come on, have at it. And how did Thomas reply? My Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And, and we can look to our own lives and to the lives of other believers, how God has led us to his son through natural leadings, through supernatural leadings. Some of our journeys have took, taken longer than others, and some of our journeys have been harder than others. And some of you may still be on the journey trying to figure out who Jesus really is. I believe he's the Christ. He's the chosen one. And I, I think back to my own life as a young man. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, but I, I never grasped the gospel. I never knew that I needed to receive Jesus as my Savior. And as a, as a teenager, I ended up rejecting Christianity I said, I would find God on my own. I don't need a priest. I don't need a church. I'll figure it out myself. And, and as a teenager, I began to, to experiment with drugs and alcohol. And, and very quickly, my life kind of spiraled into a life of addiction. And I spent about two years higher drunk every day. And on the outside, it may have seemed like that, that God was nowhere on my radar. But, but there was something inside me, right, that, that had a longing. There was an emptiness inside me um, that I recognized. Now, at the time, I didn't re realize that that emptiness was just a longing for God. And so... 
I, I filled that, that emptiness with, with numbing myself, with pleasure. I, I believe that my drug use was, was leading to spirituality. I actually be, began to, to look into New Age religion. But the reality was is that, that all these things were empty spirituality, not based in truth. But despite this, in God's grace and his mercy, just before I turned 20, two weeks after my son was born, God captured my heart. He led me to his son. What I, what I did know of him, like God confirmed through the power of the Holy Spirit I had a powerful encounter with the living God. Now, at the, at the time, I did not have a complete, you know, full theological understanding of who God was. I did not know full Christian doctrine. But what I did know is that Jesus was my Savior and that I wanted to give my life to him. And so Jesus received me. I gave my life to him and Jesus received me. And he received my worship. And that's what is amazing about the gospel message is that God will receive those who will receive him. And we read in Ephesians 2.8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So God offers to all of humanity salvation through faith alone. Believing in his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but be given eternal life. And so when we look at the the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, who do we see that, that visited Jesus as a child? The Magi, and we look in Luke and we see shepherds, right? God found that it was so necessary to reveal the birth of his son to these foreigners, to these men of a different religion, right? And he, and he revealed the birth of his son and, he, and he, draw, he drew them to himself. And the shepherds, we don't have time to talk about shepherds, but just briefly, the shepherds, they were just uneducated men, lower class, not obviously looking for God, but God thought it was so necessary to reveal the birth of his son to them. And, and thinking about who did Jesus first reveal himself to after the resurrection? It was women. It was women who were his disciples. And, and in that cultural context, like women, they were considered property. They had no voice. And I think it's very interesting that, that, that God chose to reveal the birth of his son, when Jesus stepped onto earth the first time, who received his worship? Foreigners. And when he was in his resurrected, day, resurrected state, who was the first to worship him? Women. Right? And so what does that say about the God that we worship? I believe it says that there's no barrier. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you are, what sex you are, what your religious background is, what your race is, salvation is found in Jesus and he welcomes all. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that all are welcome to receive the gift of his son.
Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. All right, we're going to move on. And our, our second point is that giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. And going back to chapter 2, verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the Magi, they came and they worshipped, and as a continuation of their worship, they presented Jesus with gifts. Their adoration and worship of, of Christ led to presenting offerings to him. And, and traditionally, um, some suggest that, that the, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that there's symbolism behind these, that the gold, it represents Jesus' kingship, that the myrrh represents his priestly role, and the, the, uh, or the uh, frankincense is his pre- priestly role, and the myrrh is... is um, points to his death and, and burial. Um, and others suggest it's just symbolic of the kingdoms that the Magi were from. And others say that, that it's uh, just practical gifts of great value and some medicinal worth. But again, we don't know the exact significance, if there's certain significance of these gifts. But what we do know is that they were given as an act of worship. Right? And, and when we give for the purpose of the kingdom, this is an act of worship. When we give tithes, when we give offerings, when we donate to the food pantry, when we give to missionaries, when we have a family member who is in need, when we give, it is an act of worship. Right? And, and sometimes when we're struggling financially, it can be stressful to us. It can be a sacrifice to give, but when we give, it honors God, and and he receives it as worship. Now, if we go back to the drummer boy, he didn't have a gift to give. He didn't have a gift to give that would honor the king, so what did he do? He played his drum. He played his drum, and the carol hones in on the fact that the boy, he didn't have any possessions that he could give, but he could give something of himself. And I believe this carol hits the nail on the head with with driving home that worship leads to the giving of ourselves. Right? So that's our third point, that worship leads to the giving of ourselves to giving things that God has deposited in us, to give what we're able to give, and to give for God's pleasure rather than his approval. And and when we're pursuing Christ, we will naturally and supernaturally be given the desire to honor him with our lives to honor him with our talents, to honor him with our jobs, with our resources, with our time, with our bodies, our minds, our relationships. And honoring God with these things from ourselves is an act of worship. And sometimes offering parts of our lives can come easily. But other times there's things that 
I don't know if you've experienced this, that you want to hold on to parts of your lives. Have you ever experienced that? Right? And sometimes the concept of living our life for Christ can be confusing. Like often, you know, when leading someone to Jesus for the first time, we talk about that you are surrendering your life to Jesus, that you're making him Lord over your life. And if you're like me, as time has gone on as a believer, I recognize that there's many areas of my life that aren't surrendered to Jesus. And, and sometimes I, I find that, that I, I struggle with like a performance-based faith, thinking that, that you know, my, my Bible reading is what is going to draw me close to Jesus, that it's going to get his approval, or that, that by doing religious things that, that that's going to get approval from my heavenly Father. Like, and as a youth pastor, I'm at church a lot, and I'm doing a lot of religious things, leading Bible studies. Um, but I find that, that without intimacy, without intimacy with Christ, that, that faith is empty. And so I believe that coming up with a baseline of understanding of what's God's desire and expectation of us is a helpful beginning point. And so we can read in Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17, it says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So when King David wrote this psalm, he was talking to God about his sin. He recognized how sinful he was, and he was asking God to cleanse him of his sin. And at the time, the law required animal sacrifice for atonement for sin. But David understood that God's ultimate desire was not sacrifice, it was not religious duty, but God's desire was his own recognition of sin, of David's own sin, of his own brokenness, his own need for God, and a heart that was open to God, a heart that was soft to God. And so David was saying, this is what I have to offer you, God, my brokenness. And a, and a heart that was open to God, a heart that was soft to him. So for those of you who, who may struggle with the concept of, of surrendering your life to Jesus or or what that looks like, or feeling like you have little that you can offer to God as worship, I say make your offering to God a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit, saying to God, come and meet me in my brokenness, help my heart be soft to you, and if you do, I believe that God will receive this as worship, so that's our baseline. That's our baseline, recognizing our own brokenness and a heart that's open to him. And this is a constant state 
for the life of the believer that we are always dependent, that we're always broken, and that we will never not need him. But then we can go further from there with our worship to God. A couple of weeks ago, we were in a series called Worship is a Verb, which was an awesome series. And, and JT mentioned that we're always worshiping, and, and we're showing a worship pie. Do you guys remember the worship pie? Right? In that pie, we have direct worship with a small part of that pie. That pie is our life. And we have direct worship where we are singing and, and, and praising God. But so much of the rest of the pie was indirect worship, where that's the rest of our life. And whether we recognize it or not, what we do is worship to God. What we do is worship to God. And, and every day we have the opportunity to recognize and offer what we do as worship to God. And there's many of you here who have a job that taps into your giftings and your talents. And you can invite God in to that and offer that to him as worship. And then there's other of you where your job may not necessarily tap into all of your giftings and talents and, and that it may be just a job that put, puts food on the table, right? There might be some of you who have a job, you're like, I hate my job. Like, I was there for a long time. Now I do have a job, kids. I really like my job now. But I, I was there at one point. And, but we can invite God into our jobs. Like, help me, Jesus, worship you in the way that I respond to this rude customer. Help me worship you, Jesus, in the way that I respond to my boss. They may seem incompetent at times, but let me not talk badly about them behind their back. Let that be worship to you. Like, help me worship you as I sweep the floor, as I take care of this patient. Right? And God will receive worship. God will receive worship from that. And for those of you who are stay-at-home moms and dads, right, sometimes your work can seem unappreciated, undervalued, but that is worship to the Lord, the sacrifice that you're making by taking care of your kids. So whether we recognize it or not, what we do is worship to God. And, and, and if we change our mind, if, if we recognize that it is worship, it will influence and affect how you live, how you perceive your, your daily life. And if what we do is worship to God, then God deserves our best. He deserves our best. Jesus deserves our best. And, and how did the little drummer boy play? It says he played his best for Jesus, doesn't it? But it doesn't say that he was very good, does it? <laughs> it doesn't say how good he was. But it says that he played his best for Jesus, and Jesus smiled at him. Right? And, and so Jesus deserves our best in our jobs, in our schoolwork, in our relationships, how you speak to those who are closest to you, 
how you speak to those you have a great distaste for, how you handle your finances, how you raise your kids, how you respond to your your wife's little ankle-biting dog that's always yippy. But when I think about giving our best, I think it can be easily confused with obtaining perfection, right? And in The Drummer Boy, it really doesn't say um, that he was, he was the, the greatest drummer, right? And, and it can be a struggle for the perfectionist out there that, that thinking that, that God only deserves perfection. But I, I think that is not, that is what, isn't God's desire. He doesn't desire perfection from us. Like we, we have busy lives. Some of us have workloads that are heavy, school loads that are heavy. We are dealing with relational problems. We're dealing with health problems, problems uh, health problems of our family members right? Death of a loved one, depression, money issues. There are times in our lives when things pile up. And there's so, only so much that we're capable of carrying. And there's times where we are capable of carrying much. And there's other times where we're not capable of carrying as much. But our desire should be to give God our best But I believe Jesus' expectation is that we're to give out of what we're able to. And I think we can go to to just this this concept, this biblical principle in Mark 12 where where Jesus was was at the temple and he's watching people put money into the treasury and and a poor woman came and she just gave a couple of of, uh, copper coins, a few cents, and Jesus commended her and, and said, she's given the most because she gave out of her poverty. And I think this is a biblical principle that, that, that Jesus understands what we're able to give. And he receives worship from that, even if it just seems like it's a little. If you don't think it's, if it's not perfect, that's not, that's not the point. Jesus just wants us to give what we are able to give Because our Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. Our God is compassionate. He knows what you're going through. And he'll receive your worship, even if it isn't perfect. Our last point to close, um, one of my favorite missionaries um, he's a great of encouragement, um, came and, and spoke to our small group rec- recently, uh, Christopher Meyer. Um, he's a missionary that came out of this church. Uh, he and his wife, Denise, serve in Brazil, and God has done a wonderful thing in his life. He has just redeemed him and, and used him. And, and, and Christopher came and spoke to our group, and, and he said something that uh, was like a gold nugget, right? And he said, the best present we can give to Christ is our yes. The best present we can give to Christ is our yes. And that's our last point. That, that Jesus receives worship when we say yes to him. And this is the first yes, inviting Jesus into your life for the first time, or the thousandth time you said yes, and giving access to God to more of your life. 
and being open to the Holy Spirit and saying yes when the Holy Spirit prompts your heart. And this covers such a huge array of our life, prompting us to say yes to pray for a friend, to say a kind word to a stranger, being open to God's prompting to to share your faith, to say yes, that that God, I'm going to give you my sexuality. I'm going to give to you this relationship. Saying yes, that I'm going to take steps towards forgiving my ex-spouse. Saying yes that you have authority over my finances. Saying yes to inviting you into my day and asking for your presence to be with me as I read your word and pray. So when we say yes to Jesus, this is an offering to him. This is an act of worship. So as we prepare for Christmas, I want to challenge us to reflect on how God has drawn us to his son, Jesus Christ, to reflect upon how God has been faithful and has revealed himself to us through natural means, through supernatural means, and then to evaluate if we're, rec- if we're recognizing and presenting what we do and how we live as worship to God. And is Jesus getting our best? Is Jesus getting your best? But understand that he is a gracious, compassionate God. And lastly, what is God inviting you to say yes to? What is God inviting you to say yes to? So as we draw close to Christmas, as we draw closer to the day that we'll see our Father face to face, let's recognize that all that we do is worship to Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys can stand.